so you are on a passenger plane heading from Johannesburg to Tokyo International Airport, and you are tired, worn from the exertions of your stay in Hexadyne Industries. You especially don't quite feel like that was a total victory. Well, mainly because you did wake up out of a rather horrifying reverie to find that you had incinerated a couple of your colleagues. So I'm not quite sure how Adam is taking that now that he is sober and away from the mission. He's the... Taking it as stoically as he can, which is to say, not the greatest. Internally screaming. Mostly internally, yeah. You are, however, on this flight, and Orpheus has been kind enough to lend you a blank check to pay for your tickets. So if Adam decided to, for once, sit in, in, sit in first class instead of the tuna can that is uh, economy, he could. Yeah, could, yeah. But he'll probably try to fit at least within the eye shot of his cell, if anyone else is on the plane. Oh yeah, yeah, all of you are, all, all of you are on the plane, don't worry. He'll probably sit in the uh, same department as Jihiro, which I suspect will be first class anyway. Yeah, you do that. The flight takes off as per normal, and as the flight progresses, you drift off into deep sleep, exhausted from your exertions the hours before. And when you fall asleep, you dream. Your mind drifts to a place from long, long time ago. Something that you thought you'd put away behind you all those years ago. You wake up and you find yourself standing in front of a wooden podium. It's hot, kind of dry, and as you blink a few times to get used to your surroundings, you find yourself in a church. There are people sitting in front of you in the pews. Quite a lot of people, actually. And you can hear cars go by. There's quiet conversation going on outside, muffled by the wooden walls. And when you look down at yourself, you find yourself wearing very simple blue shirt, blue jeans, with that little white priest's collar around your collar. This feels oddly familiar for some reason. That it does. And I know where I am. And I know the part that I have to play. So I'll reach under the table, pull out my Bible for deal with notes for a cycle, and I'll pull out what I thought was a prop at the time. A little something that I Never should have picked up. At least, you didn't realize it was bad at first. Someone must have put this weird text up on your podium as a prank, as you so often do. The parish here, they know your reputation of reading silly things to start off your sermons. Just last week, you read the menu of the only diner that's in your town, much to the chagrin of the owner who attends. And you so happily espoused the breakfast pancakes and the sausages that the owner claims to make in-house. Truly blessed in the eyes of the Lord. You peel the tome open and flip to a page that has been sort of bookmarked with a little post-it note. 
You peel off the post-it note, stick it on the side of the podium, and you start reading. The words are familiar. Well, they sound familiar. They feel familiar. And now I'd like you to roll an awareness or perception, please. So that's a total of negative one before spending strain, which I will not do. Why would I? Everything is going fine. Everything is good today. I didn't put my perception at one. Well, you certainly don't notice you are enraptured by this text. Looking back, it felt right that you were doing this. It almost felt as if God himself had ordained your use of this text as you preach and you talk and you share and you recite the words on the page, page after page after page, and you don't notice the sound. You don't notice the smell. Only after you raise your eyes from another page, sweat dripping profusely from your brow, do you notice the heat, the sound of crackling, the smell of burning meat. You look up, and the church is on fire. The people are on fire. Everything is on fire. But you, you stand in the midst of this maelstrom, unharmed, still preaching spittle flying from your lips as you continue talking, shouting the words now. There is a firestorm around you, and these people that are on fire burning their flesh, crisping and then blackening, they are sitting raptly at attention, eyes focused on you. And then everything seems to slow. It seems to take a moment. Everything around you slows to a crawl and eventually to a stop. All the flames stop moving, stop dancing. Even the particles of ash in the air seem to pause, almost. And out of the roaring, raging fire in front of you steps forth a man. He is rather average height, black hair. He's wearing a black suit and tie, white shirt. Looks kind of dingy, messy almost. The shirt is untucked. The tie is kind of loose around his collar. But the thing that stands out the most is that his head and his hands are wrapped in bandages. Dirty, bloody bandages. And the only thing that you can see on his face are his eyes and his mouth. And his nose, of course. And on the left breast of his dress shirt are the, two wo- are, uh, are the words, Wake up written in blood. And he has his hands in his pockets as he walks out from this inferno that someone paused, and he goes, Well now, in this society. What's happening? Who are you? Who I am isn't important. What's more important is if you recognize the scene in front of you. I do, sir. So I will admit, you are a new addition to it. Of course. This is, after all, a memory. You're dreaming, Father Clearwater. He walks over to you and takes a seat at the steps leading up to the podium and the stage. And he pats the wood next to him. And he says, Come on, seriously. 
We've got a little something, something to talk about. Adam will follow this mysterious bandaged stranger. Gently take a seat, brushing some of the sparks off. All right, bandage man. What do you got to say? You know, me and the people that have authorized me to come and talk to you, talk to your friends, we've been observing you and yours for some time. And the way things are going in the world, we figure the world could use a little help. Now I can't tell you who employs me or where I come from or who I am because that would affect the balance too much. But what I can offer you is advice and uh, point you in a direction. You regret all this, don't you? And he gestures to the tableau out in front of you. That I do, sir, with all my heart. Regret is a horrible, sobering emotion, isn't it? I had given up drink, but I probably went back to it. As it stands, I do what I can to see if I can fix this. He waves a hand to the burning pyres, crumbling building. See if I can at least give them a little peace. If not, do away with this. You know, I have to find myself thinking about regret. Sometimes, in my journeys through this weird and wonderful place. But the point is, regret can shape us. Sometimes, it destroys you. It ruins your life. Does horrible things to you and the people around you. But for others, it can make us stronger. By realizing certain things about ourselves, it reminds us that we still have a conscience. That in spite of every horrible thing we've ever done, there's still a part of us, however small, that wishes for it to be better, for us to heal and be free of this emotional torment. Confronting your regret and your guilt over past events and seeking forgiveness, even from yourself, can set you on that path to emotional recovery. Strength and resolve and forgiving yourself is the first step on your road to recovery. After all, doesn't your God forgive and forget too? And you wake up in the plane. You are covered in a sheen of cold sweat. The plane itself is fine. You don't hear anything amiss. You don't feel anything amiss. It's quiet. People are asleep. Some might even be walking towards the bathroom. And you are strapped firmly into your seat. But you are fine and you are awake and you are shaken. What? You feel a small weight in your pocket. And he'll reach into it. Pushed out. Take a look. It's a small glass file, maybe about like half your finger long, and it's filled with a light gray powder. As you sort of shake it, it's very fine, kind of looks like dust. There is a label on this glass file. It's crudely written on a piece of duct tape in black Sharpie, and the label reads G. Delaney, 57, male. G. Delaney 57, huh? Would any of that have any meaning to me? Well, it depends. Do you remember your old name? Do you remember your old life? As I do. No, Adam will just take a look at it, consider it for a couple of minutes, and then he'll excuse himself and head to the bathroom. And once he gets in, it's a vial, right? Yeah, it's a glass vial with a little cork. He'll pop the cork and inhale the contents down. As you lift the vial to your nose and just inhale this powder, it feels as if 
a puzzle piece clicks into place inside your soul, it feels right. It feels odd. There's a burning all the way down your sinuses and down your airway as you reclaim this lost part of you and you become stronger for it. So this interlude takes place on the plane ride from Johannesburg to Tokyo. Since you and Adam and Shihiro finished your mission at Hexadon Industries, you've been evacuated, bundled onto a plane, and then basically just sent off to Japan to help another cell with their mission. And so you've been basically enjoying the relative comforts of a passenger jet, maybe Rodney's elected to spend some of Orpheus's bottomless money in getting first class or business class or something better than economy. Yeah, probably. And you are exhausted from what you've seen and what you did. And as you settle into your seat, you sort of stare out the window, watching the lights of the city of Johannesburg fade into the distance past the cloud cover as the plane ascends into the sky. And you fade into a deep sleep. And in that sleep, you dream long and hard. When you wake up, you find yourself in the middle of a large sort of fairground square. It's nighttime. It's also quite quiet. There are the sounds of crickets, cars very far away in the distance, the sounds of metal sort of idly shifting in the cold. It looks like a theme park. What do you do? What kind of, like... What kind of rides are around? Oh, you see a roller coaster off in the distance. There's a Ferris wheel, a little tilt-a-whirl. From where you're standing, you seem to be in the center of some sort of square that branches off into other parts of this theme park. It looks pretty big, actually. Kind of reminds you of some place, that place that you haven't been to in a long time. And the more you look around and connect these dots, the more you come to realize that, yes, this is, in fact, that place. It is the Magical Exploration World theme park, the place where you came from. Are the lights on the rides and stuff on? Like, am I able to, to see around me a bit? There are street lights illuminating the paths and such, but the ride lights are mostly off. You gather from how late and how dark it is that the park is mostly closed. There seems to be very few people on the ground level. In fact, you probably only see a janitor or two wandering around, cleaning up the place after the crowds have already left. I would know where to find like an, an employee room, right? Oh, yes. You remember very distinctly. There is an employee entrance to the tunnels below the park pretty much in every major attraction. And near you are several of the eateries that also have employee entrances. I'm going to go see if any of the eateries are open, grab something small, and then head towards the tunnels if I can. Okay. You head for the closest one. Looks like a American diner-esque place. The door isn't locked. And you go in, you fix yourself something light, like a hot dog, and then you enter the employee areas, the tunnels. Down here, the contrast, it's a lot more evident than upstairs. The tunnels down here are dingy. You can hear 
the sounds of water leaking from a pipe somewhere. It's dank, kind of smells like mold. But these tunnels are familiar to you. They almost feel like home. Um, I'm going to try and find just... I don't know what I'm trying to find. I'm just going to walk around a bit, kind of remembering like the, uh, how I used to uh, travel around in this place. So you let your legs guide you. You're not really looking for anything in particular, just wandering around, remembering what the rooms were, how you used to be friends with a couple of pe- the other employees here, bump into them as they wander around these same tunnels, going to different parts of the park. And eventually your rambling sort of walk takes takes you to a section of the park that's underneath you recognize the haunted house and you remember this is where you were first led to when you first joined the park is this the place where i got my uh entertainer suit yes you actually see the same laundry room where your guide got that suit for you the same suit that you're currently wearing i'm gonna because I remember this is not the suit I'm supposed to be wearing. This was the wrong suit. And it wasn't noticed that it was the wrong suit. The only person who knows that, I guess, would be Rodney. The other suits look a bit better, well-maintained, still a bit obviously a ripoff of, of different characters, but not to the extent of, of Rodney's suit. And as you recall this information, you feel that sort of pull towards the laundry room. It's almost as if someone's calling you there. What do? I will enter the laundry room. As you enter the laundry room, it looks exactly like you remember it. There are washing machines, dryers, and big racks with costumes and clothes all hanging either to dry or for an entertainer to pick them up later on. There's tags on some of these, like name tags and stuff. It feels very familiar. And this feeling, this calling you feel, only grows stronger as you enter the room. And when you take a look around, you find that your eyes are inevitably drawn to the Michael Mouse costume hanging in the center of one of these racks. It, it is very uncanny how, like, it the the difference between the suit Rodney is wearing now, the the Michael Mouse suit he wears now, how very different it is than the one hanging on the rack in front of him. How it was ever mixed up is incomprehensible. There's no way someone should have made a mistake this big, but. He stands here now in front of his old suit wearing the the one he didn't realize he put on. You take off the suit that you're wearing right now. It feels liberating almost in a way as you shed whatever it was that you were wearing before and slip into the Michael Mouse suit. And the more of it that you put on, the more right it feels, the more at home, you feel, until the head meets the chest or the collar of the costume. And you are Michael Knox. You have embodied him as you have ever since you left the park. But this costume is pristine, squeaky clean, almost as if someone had prepared it specifically for this moment. 
for you. I will take a moment to just... Normally, I don't like wearing the helmet. It smells pretty bad. But as, as I put this new one on, it doesn't smell like anything, really. It smells like I'm free. Like, that's smell you get whenever you're outside and alone. Just pure air. And then you remember everything else that came after. And the smell, this comforting scent of freedom slowly changes into sweat and dirt and blood as you feel more than here the presences of several other entities sort of flowing around you like water flows around a rock in a river. You remember wandering these tunnels late one night after finding out that you weren't able to remove this suit and seeing things, hearing things. Since I remember the tunnels a bit more, and I know not necessarily how to control the suit, but make the suit work in my favor. Is it possible for me to find the old employee room? I searched for it the first night I, I put on the suit. It comes as second nature. You leave the laundry room, go around a corner, around another corner, down a hallway, and you find the employee's break room that you were in the very first night you got this suit. It's almost like you felt that same sort of pull towards this room. Something subconsciously guiding you towards this place. I will enter the room. I don't think I, I, I reached the room the first night. I think I got lost. Too lost. You pull open the door. This place looks pretty normal. There's a microwave, a fridge, water cooler. There's a couple of tables, some cabinets where you assume people will keep like instant coffee, tea, microwave meals. There are lockers on the other end of the room along with bathrooms, showers. All in all, it's a very typical, normal looking restroom for employees of this park. But with how dark it is down here, you don't feel that same sort of homeliness or you don't feel at ease in here. Unless I feel a reason to stay in this break room, I want to head to the locker room and see if I can't find and open my old locker. It feels like you're following breadcrumbs in your mind as you enter the locker room, slowly staring over the lockers, the names of the people that used to work here, or maybe perhaps still do, familiar to you. And it doesn't take you very long to find your locker. Rodney Anton. The name is written on a hello, my name is sticker in black Sharpie. You paste it on the front of the uh, locker. It's probably also the only name in English. There is a, there's a, a, a semi-translated version underneath, but uh, I'm going to open my locker. You open the locker and inside you find reminders of who you used to be. Your old things, like a backpack, phone, and even an ID card on a lanyard. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna grab that ID card, and I, I don't think anything else is really interesting to me. 
as you grab the ID card, you hear footsteps in the hallway behind you, loud and distinct. Can I still do things this suit can let me do, or is this like when I first got it? A little bit inert. Yeah, this is this is when you first got it, so you you have no idea how to control the suit. I will try and just duck somewhere and hide then. Probably not very well. As you duck behind a rack of lockers and hide, the footsteps grow louder and louder and louder until you can hear the door to the break room open, followed shortly by the door to the locker room opening. You hear the footsteps slow as they perhaps pace into the center of the room, and you hear a voice go, Hello? Rodney, are you in here? I won't step out, but I will respond. Uh, yeah? Oh, thank God. I ran over the whole park trying to look for you. Funny that you ended up here instead of where I'm supposed to bring you in. Um, can you, like, come out, please? I will step out. Is this person speaking to me in English? Yeah, he's speaking to you in English. I will step out. Um, who are you? As you step out behind uh, the rack of lockers that you hid behind, you come face to face with a man. It's about average height, brown hair, messy, and short. Wearing a black suit, black tie, white dress shirt. His face and hands are wrapped in bandages. And the only things that you can see of him that are, well, skin or flesh are the eyes, his teeth, and the bottom of his nose. Everything else is wrapped up in bandages. The bandages are dirty, bloody. And on the shirt that he's wearing, you can see the words wake up written in blood on the left breast. He sees you wearing the suit, holding the ID card on the lanyard and goes, Oh, you found, uh, uh, you found uh, a thing I was going to give you. How uh, can he? Um, that uh, puts a little... Um, I, I had a whole speech and something planned for you. Uh, and then I was going to give you that thing, so... Uh, who, who are you? My name isn't important, but... What is important is the reason why I called you here. You and your friends are some very interesting people. And it's been entrusted to me by the people that I represent that I give you that ID card on that language and uh, tell you some stuff. It's to help the world, really. Run your side. If you continue going down this path, you'll come face to face with forces that are more dangerous than you think. And the entities that I represent, and myself included, we don't want to see these bad people take over the world or destroy it. Who are these bad people? You already know. It's the people that you came up against in Africa, and the people you will continue facing every step of the way. Uh, do, do, do I already know of them as uh, the, the Applied Materials group? From the intelligence that your hero gained, yes. Who? I mean, I guess I know of the Applied Materials Company, but past that, who are they? Madmen, psychos, some of them savages, old remnants of a world that by all intents and means is supposed to be dead, but some of them yet live and they're trying to flip a big bird at the rest of humanity for doing them a great injustice. Uh, not to say I, I don't trust you, but why should I? Why not? After all, uh, you found the gift I was supposed to give you. And he gestures to the ID card, your ID card, 
that you are currently holding. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I have a speech plan for you, for, for, for you, know, you know, coming down here. I would, I would bring you down here and give you your things. Uh, why, why is this card a card important, uh, especially when we're talking about uh, a company like Applied Materials? Mostly so that you don't lose your way. I've unfortunately seen other people do the same, face to the same sort of situation. And he sort of gestures to the locker room and the room around you? They never take my advice, spit in my face sometimes, try and kill me. I've given, or at least attempted to give guidance for these people in a long, long series of ill-fated ventures that have never really amounted to much. Part of this is me trying to set things straight, trying to make it right. You and your friends, you don't realize just how important you are in the grand scheme of things. You know, I, uh, and, uh, what's so important about us? Are we supposed to, to stop all this? If I tell you anymore, well, needless to say, some plans will be ruined. You make your own assumptions. I'm just here to give you what I'm supposed to give you and tell you what I'm supposed to tell you and then leave. Am, am I asleep right now? As a matter of fact, you are in a plane heading towards Tokyo, Japan. The plane is fine, don't worry. You and your two friends are fast asleep, each talking to a facet of myself, receiving your own guidance and their own journeys to walk. So, uh, what else? I mean, you, you gave me the card, what you said is what you gotta do. What else you gotta say? Well, I had a little something planned about how you want to be free from that. And he gestures to the suit that you wear. It's a nice thing to have that suit, to have all that power, but I also understand that you seek recompense or a sort of vengeance against the people who might have given it to you or the circumstances behind you putting on that suit here in this very park. Come to think of it, you don't actually know what happened here, do you? Why all those children attach themselves to you spiritually? Uh, I got an idea, I guess. I mean, I've always kind of saw dead people, not to the extent I do now, I guess, but it's a, it's an amusement park. It's a place where a bunch of people happen to stuck in accidents and such. This place, this place is more than just an amusement park. Follow me. And he sort of gestures towards the door, kind of makes to leave. Before I follow you, I have just one last, one last question. Go ahead. Do you know what this suit is? He takes a look at you, takes a look at the suit, back at you. Oh, I know. It's... To explain it, we'd be stuck here for another few hours, and I wouldn't want you to miss disembarking your flight. Suffice to say, it's incredibly powerful, but in the wrong hands, it could be a lot worse. Maybe the suit shows you for a reason. I'd be first. Something choosing me, uh, and he will follow. So as you follow this man, he leads you deeper into the tunnels, wings where you've never been to before, that are unfamiliar to you, and eventually stops at a set of double doors. As you have been walking through these hallways and tunnels, you see that things have been getting more and more decrepit, old, covered in dust, rust, and mold, all of that good stuff. And this set of double doors looks like tarnished glass. 
it kind of contrasts to the other regular like office doors of the other rooms that you've walked past. And there's also a metal sign in front of this door. The man in bandages stops in front of the door and the sign and he goes, I bet you might have looked here. You've probably never seen this, have you? Uh, it doesn't look familiar to you. You've never seen it before in your life. Have I seen anything like it? Like old? Like obviously, this is like the, some of the deepest points. Have I seen things similar to this, or just completely alien? It feels alien, but at the same time, you think you've seen this sort of thing before, specifically in Orpheus back when they first brought you in and tried to ascertain just how much power there was in that suit you wear. But it doesn't look like Orpheus, at least not right now, anyway. Uh, I never seen this specific door, but seems familiar. Well, I'll be interested to learn about this. He sort of gestures you to come closer to this metal sign, and he pulls on the sleeve of his shirt, sort of wraps it over his hand, and wipes away the grime and dirt that cover this metal sign. And you can see now that it says Gene Link employees only. Uh, sorry, do I recognize Gene Link as, as anything? You recognize it in passing when Chihiro started pulling all of that intelligence data from the servers in Hexadyne Industries. Gene Link was one of the companies that was briefly, very briefly mentioned in the finance reports from across the world that were being funneled through Hexadyne Industries. Is it, does the door look like it's uh, locked or anything? It doesn't look like it's locked, no. It looks like one of those motion sensor doors, along with a small keycard lock on the side. I'm going to try the key, my keycard. You hold your ID card up to the lock. Nothing happens. You take a closer look, and it looks like the ID reader itself is unpowered. It's off. The man goes, yeah, I, don't I, don't I mean, after all, these people turned this place into a madhouse. You wanted to know where those children's spirits came from. Here you are. There's a, there's, a, there's a pause from Rodney. I find it interesting that you think it'd work. I don't think I ever worked for Gene Link. It was just a, 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 I don't know. Well... The ID card I gave you isn't just an old ID card. You'll find out in due time. But why I brought you here is to show you everything. Well, almost everything behind why you are where you are now. I don't know what you're going to do with this information, but don't let it blind you. Don't let it consume you like vengeance consumes people. Don't let it ruin your life. What are they doing in there? Or... I guess we're doing in there. I couldn't tell you this part of history was something that I glossed over. I'd have to look into it more, but suffice to say, the people that worked here were carrying out some very bad experiments on these children. You might want to ask some of your other comrades if you want to know more. Not here, of course. Those, those people are in another place. On another mission, perhaps you'll run into them sooner or later. Keep that question in the back of your mind for now, at least. So, in my experiences with this kind of stuff, uh, am I going to wake up and have this key card on me? Because that'll be weird. He shrugs and chuckles. 
made my mind, yeah, sharp as you look. <laughs> Funnily enough, yeah, your other friends aboard this flight never really considered that option. He walks over to you and puts both his hands on your shoulders. You know you've got a good heart, kid. A long life ahead of you. Just make sure your head's screwed on and follow the right path, you know. Make this world a better place than when you first came into it. Make these assholes pay. But don't let your quest for vengeance become all that you are. Don't be like Inigo Montoya. He dedicated his life to nothing but vengeance for his father. And after he killed a man with six fingers, he had nothing left. Don't be like him. Be something greater instead. I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, but, uh, okay. You can ask her if it's an old movie. She might have watched it when you were younger. It's fine. Anyway, back to the realm of the living. He snaps his fingers and you wake up on the plane. Everything is as it should be. Is, 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 do, I, do I have the key card? Yes, the ID card is hanging around your neck. It's your ID card. You have a feeling that this card will take you places. I will fake the big, wide, like, hands on the side of my face, gasping face. Just highly exaggerated. Just like, oh my god, I can't believe this happened. Yeah. And you feel like you've reclaimed at least a small part of yourself with this ID card around your neck. You feel more like you now, as opposed to a suit controlling your body. Where we last left off with you guys, you are, or you were, on a ghost ship. The Hanover Bridge, you're investigating why it was sort of floating, abandoned in the middle of the uh, South China Sea. You and Jesse and Adrian. Yes. And right now you've been given orders to move to Hashima Island for the next stage of your investigation. You've already reached there by the time you've received word that your backup was on its way. And so you have set up a small sort of camp on a small secluded part of Hashima Island, safe from the elements, while the three of you are sort of waiting for the rest of your backup to arrive. And because you were using quite a bit of your hefty brain to investigate that ghost ship, you suppose you might spend a couple of hours just sort of resting off the experience? Yes. This is a, this is a small camp. You probably have like a tent or several tents just for you to like sleep in, sleeping bags. There's a fire, a small stove for you to make hot drinks or heat up MREs if you need. It's all very like survivalist, something that you might be used to considering that you live out of a trailer. Oh, yeah. It's actually a, probably a step up from what I have in my van because the van hasn't been fully kitted out. So a lot of it is just glorified camping. Well, I mean, in the van, you do have a bed and a mattress. Out here, it's a sleeping bag. Mm, that is true. But here, at least you have a, a working stove. Yeah. And there comes a point in time where fatigue sort of overtakes you and you decide to have a nap just a while away at the time. And as you sleep, you dream and you wake up in your RV back home. It feels like a bright 
morning. You see sunlight streaming through what curtains you have on the windows of your RV. It smells the same of stale food, electronics, and accumulated man sweat, i.e. normal home, as it were. I kind of rub the sleep out of my eyes and look around and furrow my eyebrows and think, oh, that's a weird dream I had. Ugh, shake the sleep out, stand and stretch, go and open the front door just to kind of see, remind myself where I parked last. You are parked somewhere out in the middle of nowhere in a sort of forested area? Yeah, that's right. You can't really see if there's a main road from here. You've probably driven a few minutes off the beaten track just so you have a nice quiet place to settle down and broadcast your show for a few hours or a few days. Yeah, that tracks. I uh, poke my head out and just kind of do a brief survey and uh, stretch a little bit more and go back into the van and uh, grab a Coke Zero, crack it open, grab a granola bar, crack that open, and have my typical breakfast. Uh, then I pull up my email and I log in to the alias that changes once a month and I look for the latest dead drop. You scroll through some spam mail, some fan mail, and find the dead drops email. It's a nice little zip file full of text messages, pictures, newspaper clippings, amateur video, and it's titled The Dead Drops, as per usual. Jonah Greenberg always puts it in a nice little package, almost with a bow on top. And uh, I grin to myself and start going through looking for what might be legitimate and what is a good story, but maybe not as legitimate, and weeding out the ones that are neither. You read through a few stories, some eyewitness accounts, look through a few pictures, skim a few videos. You, you spend a while doing this, probably about an hour or an hour or two, compiling enough material for a new episode of your show. And once you have enough material, you turn on all of the associated electronics you have for your radio show. Make sure the broadcast is encrypted. Tap your microphone. And then you get to work. All right. It's a little early, but thanks for tuning in to 87.8, the bottom of the dial, Portal of the Realms Unknown. It's... Well, it's not the witching hour, but this is Dylan Jameson, with a reminder that our tales are written by people just like you. Lone souls awake in the wee hours of the night, listening to the gentle scratching at the closet door, and breathless before the unseen voyeurs that spy on them from the dark corners of the room. Their names have only been changed for privacy. Sometimes, the darkness that we fear comes not from outside, but from within. As powerful as supernatural entities are, most have a major weakness. They cannot directly affect the material plane. To such beings, the treasure they have come seeking is your mortal form. These next three listeners are sharing their stories of others who met such a fate. 
and you continue reading this story to the airwaves. Not long after you finish your first tale, you feel the table vibrate, and you quickly ascertain the source as your phone. It's buzzing. Someone's calling you. Huh, okay. I'm going to reach down and check. It is an unknown number. Wouldn't be the first time I answer the phone. Uh, yeah, this is Dylan Jameson. How can I help you? Hi, is this the uh, Dead Drops? Yeah, you have reached the Dead Drops. Uh, what story can you... What sort of tale do you have for me? Oh, it's a pretty good one, actually. It's a story I heard recently from a friend of a friend. You mind if I tell it live on the airwaves? And I'm listening to your show right now. It's pretty entertaining. You know what? Uh, usually I like to go through these, but that sounds interesting. Go ahead. Let's uh, get you on broadcast one moment. All right, listeners, we've got a little treat today. I've got someone calling in live who promises me they have quite a chilling tale to tell. Do you have an alias, sir? Uh, my name isn't really important, but uh, the story I have to tell is... All right, well... The airwaves are yours. All right, thank you. So, we've all heard stories about ghost ships, right? So, I heard from a friend of a friend that uh, one of these ghost ships was found off the coast of Japan lately. Turns out, this friend of mine was a fisherman. He and his crew were out near Japan one day. They like to fish around the area, sell their stock over to the local markets, to villages on the coast. Saw this weird-looking container ship moored out a ways from the uh, coastline. Now, that normally wouldn't attract any attention. He just thought it was just another container ship leaving, you know, Tokyo Port or something. But a few hours later, that ship was still there. It hadn't moved at all. And his, and, you know, my, my friend's friend, he was very curious. And so was the rest of his friends on his, on his boat, you know. So he told the captain and... They made a few radio calls to other ships in the area. Turns out, turns out that apparently the Japanese Coast Guard found this container ship. It was like a cargo ship or something moored off the coast of Japan. Well, not moored, but floating, abandoned. They put out a distress call a couple hours ago, but when the, the Coast Guard ship got there, there was no one there, no crew, no, no signs of life other than half-eaten meals and old clothes. Now rumor has it that uh, you had some first-hand experience with it, with uh, this kind of thing. Uh, yeah, where, um, where did you say you heard about this from? A friend of a friend. I, uh, I, um, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I do apologize, listeners. Uh, something has come up that I do need to put the broadcast on hold while it is on hold please enjoy um some music from our from one of our local bands here and i put the podcast the the broadcast on hold and i wait a few moments what are you how i don't know what you're talking about i i had a dream like that but i don't we're who are you? Like I said, my name isn't important. There's a knock on your door. I... But, uh, you should probably answer that. I mute the call, but I don't hang up. 
and I grab a kitchen knife and I kind of tuck it into my waistband so that it's easily accessible, but not real visible. And I sort of peek through the blinds on the door. Outside is a man. He has a mobile phone to his ear. The most striking thing about this man is that he is wrapped in bandages. His head and face are covered with them, as well as his hands. And he is wearing a black suit along with a tie and a white shirt. He is sort of standing around, kind of waiting for you to, or waiting for someone to perhaps answer a phone, or maybe he's on hold or something. He's occasionally cutting a glance towards the door, specifically like the handle. I I let go of the blinds so that he doesn't see it, and I I reach back and unmute the call. I take it you're the one outside. Caught me with my pants down. Would you uh open up? There's bugs out here. Uh, you know I I I know how frustrating the bug situation can be, but I I don't know you. Um, that, that doesn't, I, I appreciate you being a fan, dude, but this crosses a line. I, I, I'm not comfortable with letting you in my home. Dylan Jameson, you're dreaming. You're not actually in your home. You're in a sleeping bag inside of a tent on an island, a deserted Japanese mining island. What? I don't... And I, I'll open the door. Who the fuck are you? The man grins and hangs up on the phone, seeing as now you're in front of him. Stuffs the phone into his pocket and sort of spreads his hands in a I surrender gesture. <laughs> you got me, brother. Like I said, my name is important. There's some things I need, to, I need you to know. All right, well, um, come in, I guess. Do you want a Coke? He nods as he takes a few steps up the, well, steps of your RV. He's rather average height. Now that you're getting a good look at him, his eyes are brown. The only thing that you can see out of the bandages on his face are his eyes, his mouth, and like the bottom of his nose is uncovered. Everything else is covered in these dingy, kind of almost bloody looking bandages. And as he comes in out of the morning light, you can see that there is a message written on the left breast of his white shirt in blood. Two words. Wake up. I hand him the Coke. He cracks open the can and chugs it, wipes his mouth at the back of his hand and goes, You know, man, how long has it been since I've had one of these? Doesn't taste the same, though, without the sugar. Anyway, I know you must be confused, Dylan. Say the least. Let's just say that... The people that I work for have been watching you and your friend with uh, no small degree of interest for quite a while. That flight you were on, the ship that you investigated. I put my hand in my temple. Let's just say that you continue down this path, you're going to be facing some really dangerous people. Now, I know what it sounds like, but trust me, I'm here to help you. Because the entities that I work for, and myself included, want to see... This through. We want to make sure that the world comes out in one piece. I'm on your side here. Oh, I mean, that's a lot to take on on faith for a guy who 
is telling me that I'm dreaming right now and that the dream I was having is real. Oh, you only come for it in a moment, but uh, I'm here to tell you some things and I'm here to also give you a gift on faith from those that employ me. Okay. Sure, I'll roll with it. What you got? You know, out of all this, I realize something. You're sharper than you look. That's what I... That's what I've been told. <laughs> I mean, you have to be, considering the line of work that you're in. Yeah, it's... Honestly, it's practice. You read enough crap, you kind of start to pick up what's crap and what isn't, and when people are telling the truth and when they're not, and they tend to have that kind of insistence that you're putting on me right now, so... Don't get me wrong, it's not that I don't believe you, it's just that it's not something I've experienced before. And even if I was dreaming right now, I I don't know how I'd make myself wake up. It's not like lucid dreaming is something that I do on the regular. All of your other friends, uh, you're having the first visits with me now as well. Don't worry about it. I'll let you, I'll let you wake up once we're done. All right, so, uh... Anyway, what I'm here to say is, keep that sharpness about you. Never let anyone make you doubt your intuition and your instincts. With all of this that you're doing, all of these leads that you follow, the answers are all there in front of you. They're all just hidden in the right places. You just need to find the connections for an ultimate sense. Follow the right trails, and in time, they'll lead you to answers beyond your imagination. But take care not to follow red herrings and false leads. Trust in your friends to get you on the right path when you come to a crossroads when you need to make a decision in the near future. And keep your instincts close. You'll need them for guidance in the future. And from his other pocket, he pulls a ball of twine. It's a ball of red string, about the size of a tennis ball. He hands the ball to you. All right. Um... Red, red string to uh, connect the dots, huh? Yeah, I can decide on the imagery. Pretty fitting, though, huh? And it's apropos. In any case, your friends will be here soon. It's time for you to wake up. And he snaps his fingers, and you start awake in your sleeping bag. What? It's all real. You're still in a tent. You're in a sleeping bag. There's a st- there's a gas stove outside with a with a metal kettle on it. Close by are your two newly found friends, Adrian and Jesse. They seem to be fast asleep in their own worlds, and you feel a weight in your pocket. I reach into the pocket. And you pull out that tennis ball-sized ball of red string. Weird. <laughs> and I toss it up in the air and catch it again. It feels right that you have this ball of string. It feels like something you've needed for a long time, a piece of you that was lost, now found, and you feel powerful. You feel sharper. Huh. Thank you, meanless friend. 